Good morning. Uh, the word of the Lord this morning is from Ruth chapter 4. Boaz redeems Ruth. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take the right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi and all the all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be known in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. And Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. 
Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Marilyn. For us. Our gracious Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word and the way to which it speaks to all areas of our life. For it is truth, it is the authority by which we live. And Lord, we ask now that as we come into your word, that you would speak to us through it. That by your spirit, you would guide us along, that we might see things and understand things that we have not yet known before, and that we would see Jesus here on these pages and the grace that's offered to us through him. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask your blessing on it now in Jesus' name. Amen. In a 2019 article titled, How We'll Forget John Lennon, Kevin Berger interviews a man by the name of Cesar Hidalgo, and Hidalgo is the director for the Collective Learning Group at the MIT Media Lab. In the interview, Hidalgo tells this story about a student who dropped by his office one day, and he happened to have some music playing in the background, and this young girl, thinking that she recognized the song, asked, is this Coldplay? And Hidalgo, trying to take the girl's guess in stride, just continued on with the conversation. He realized that the song, which was imagined by John Lennon, wasn't from her generation, therefore why would she possibly know it? But this incident hit on a question that Hidalgo had thought quite a bit about. How do music and movies and all kinds of other things that once shone so brightly in popular culture just drift away? seemingly overnight from the public's collective memory? How do those pieces of knowledge and information that are shared by large groups of people just disappear? Perhaps this has happened to you. You hear a song that had its 15 seconds of fame, maybe while you were in middle or high school or even college. You'd forgotten all about it until that moment when the melody and the lyrics hit your ear and trigger something in your brain where you are instantly taken back to that place and time in your life when that song was in its prime. It happens to me all the time. If you're curious about Hidalgo's research, he and his team concluded that people and things are kept alive through oral communication anywhere from five to 30 years before they're forgotten. If they're kept alive through writings or recordings or video, they're preserved longer, but otherwise the lifespan of their memory is pretty short. And I tell you this because as we finish our series in Ruth this morning, I wonder if you noticed something about this chapter as Marilyn read it to us. There's something new. There's something that is hit on again and again in chapter four, something that the author has not directly brought to our attention until right now. Did you catch what it was? It's this idea of remembering this idea of preserving the names of the dead that they might not be forgotten, 
that Ruth and Naomi and their family would have a place in future generations. Throughout our time in this book, we've tried to emphasize a few points. We've tried to emphasize that God is at work even in those moments to us that often seem so insignificant or mundane. That for those who, who trust in the Lord, we've emphasized that he is working even in the most difficult situations for good. And finally, and perhaps what we see most clearly in our passage this morning, that God will do marvelous things according to his will, working in ways that we would completely not expect to achieve all that he has set out to accomplish. And I just bring these things before us one more time because they all hit on the big doctrinal theme that we find in Ruth, God's providence, the way in which God purposely provides for, sustains, and governs the world. It's his active and intentional care to ensure that what he has promised for his people actually does come to pass. And Ruth 4 is where God's providential care for big and small things collide. We see how these three seemingly insignificant characters in Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, the ups and downs that they face in their life, are revealed to be extremely significant to God and his plans for the redemption of his people and his world. So as we dive into Ruth 4, here's what I want us to keep in mind. That the Lord remembers his covenant people and promises. The Lord remembers his covenant people and promises. And we'll think about this in a few ways. First, we'll look at the Redeemer's dilemma. Second, preserving a name. And finally, leaving a legacy. The Lord remembers his covenant people and promises. Let's look again in verses 1 through 6 as we get started. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate, and he sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside, and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling that parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. And Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I, I cannot redeem it myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. One of you came up to me at the door last week and you said, you know, Ruth's kind of like a soap opera. Each chapter ends on a cliffhanger. We got to tune in next week to see what's going to happen. And it's a pretty good illustration and it's evident in our chapter this morning, we can imagine this camera transition happening from Ruth and Naomi's conversation in their home as Ruth tells Naomi everything that happened at the threshing floor that night. And then we almost see this fade away as, we, as Boaz heads to the city gate, this man of action ready to resolve the wannabe love triangle between himself, Ruth, and this mystery redeemer. This opening section is going to raise its fair share of questions for us. 
But before we get to them, let's just get a grasp of what's going on in the scene. So Boaz approaches the city gate, likely the place in its time where the legal, business, political transactions happened. If you wanted to get a deal done, this is where you go to do it. Boaz sits down and behold, the redeemer who Boaz was looking to meet came by and Boaz invites him to come and sit down. Now most of our English translations will tell us that Boaz calls this man friend, but that's not exactly what the Hebrew says. In fact, I I don't recommend the King James Version for everything, but here the King James Version actually gets it pretty close. The best English translation that I found reads in the King James like this, ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And that sounds funny to our ears, but it's actually a pretty good translation. Because what the Hebrew says that the King James tries to communicate is that this is not so much a friend, but a, hey, you, so-and-so, come here and sit down. This mystery redeemer is essentially a man with, with no name, something that we're going to come back to in just a moment. But after Boaz calls Mr. So-and-so to the meeting, he welcomes a group of elders from the city who are going to act as witnesses to this business, uh, this business deal. Uh, and this is where things begin to get a little bit dicey in verses three through five. Some questions pop up for us. So if you can think back to last week when Ruth met Boaz at the threshing floor where she proposed and she asked Boaz to be her redeemer and he agreed, albeit with a catch, that there was this other man who was a closer relative that Boaz needed to offer the right of redemption first. It seems that in chapter 4, the main order of business between Boaz and this mystery redeemer was to decide which one of them would redeem Ruth. So chapter 4 is a bit confusing in that the first order of business isn't Ruth. Rather, it's figuring out who gets Elimelech's land. We hear Boaz tell Mr. So-and-so, Naomi has come back from Moab and is selling the land that belonged to their relative Elimelech. This word selling is a little bit deceiving for us because it makes it sound like, I don't know, it makes it sound like Naomi's trying to shore up her financial position, like liquidate some assets that she no longer needed after Elimelech's death. But in Israel, that's not how land was was transferred. As one commentator writes, according to ancient Israelite customs regarding land ownership, Naomi, a widow, was in no position to sell land. The regulations concerning the transfer of real estate would have the land of a deceased man passing to the son or daughter or brother or uncle or another near relative, but there was no hint of a widow being allowed to claim land. So so what's going on here? And I think the simplest way to think about this, I want you to picture I want you to picture a Venn diagram that has four overlapping circles. Each of those circles is going to represent one of four Old Testament instructions concerning the redemption of people and property. That's, these, these are instructions that Boaz, I think, has in the back of his mind as he's going through this, this negotiation. I'm going to give you the references that you can look up on your own time, because I don't want to necessarily get bogged down in the weeds here, but if you have questions this week, please let me know. 
So here are the references, the passages that I think are going through Boaz's mind as he's, as he's talking with Mr. So-and-so. Leviticus 25, 25. Numbers 27, 4. Numbers 36, 4 through 6. Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6. Leviticus 25, 25. Numbers 27, 4. Numbers 36, 4 through 6. Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6. What I think we see Boaz doing with these passages is not unlike what we saw him do in chapter 2, where he interpreted various Old Testament texts concerning gleaning and those who could and could not participate in that activity. Here in Ruth 4, I think he's doing the same thing. He's interpreting his Bible to discern how God would want Ruth's situation to be resolved. I think one of the interesting things that we can note about this proposal is how Boaz positions the deal. He leads with the land, and Mr. So-and-so is all about redeeming the land. That's a no-brainer in his mind. But then Boaz throws a bit of a curveball. It's not just about the land. Mr. So-and-so would also be redeeming Ruth, the Moabite, the heiress to the land. And this information gives Mr. So-and-so some pause because there's an added level of responsibility here. He would also be agreeing to continue the family name of Elimelech, agreeing to try to have children with Ruth, that the family might not be forgotten. At least in theory. Because most commentators would point out that there is technically nothing in the law that would obligate Boaz or Mr. So-and-so to marry Ruth and continue the name of Elimelech. Boaz's appeal here is to one of honor, that Mr. So-and-so would act honorably, that he would show hesed, that common theme that we've, we've seen throughout this book as well, towards Ruth as her redeemer. So this mystery, this mystery redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, he's got some options in front of him. So picture four doors up here. Each of those doors represents a different decision that he could make. And we'll see how these different scenarios play themselves out. Door number one, Mr. So-and-so could accept the responsibility for Elimelech's estate. He could redeem the land, marry Ruth, ensure the well-being of Naomi. This would have been the honorable course of action. Door number two, Mr. So-and-so could redeem the field. He could pledge to marry Ruth and then go back on his word after the deal was done. That would have probably cost him a lot of clout in the community, and he would have lost a lot of respect. Door number three. Mr. So-and-so could decline the offer, give Boaz the right to the land, the responsibility of raising up the name of the deceased. I mean, after all, Boaz is, is kind of chomping at the bit to have that responsibility for himself. He's pretty much told Mr. So-and-so, if you decline, I'm going to accept it. And then we have door number four. Mr. So-and-so could accept the responsibility to redeem the land, but decline the responsibility to marry Ruth, giving that to Boaz. That might cost him some respect in the community, but it could also come back to bite him in the end. If Boaz and Ruth were to have a child, their heir could eventually claim the original property of Elimelech. It's one of those 
passages that I mentioned above. So what's Mr. So-and-so to do? Well, he chooses door number three. He turns everything over to Boaz. The deal's, the deal's too risky for him. There's too much personal cost for him. And he walks away. It is a bit ironic that a man with no name who declines responsibility when it's placed before him and refuses to carry on the name of his relatives is left as a ghost in this story. Not only do we not know his name, we don't know who he is, what he did, all that we have are the few words that he speaks in this chapter before he fades away. Some of you may have seen the Bruce Springsteen special on Netflix, Springsteen on Broadway. In that special, the singer, songwriter, storyteller, he talks about a powerful moment that he had with his father in which his dad drove 500 some miles from New Jersey to Los Angeles to visit Bruce before the birth of his first child. Bruce and his dad didn't have the model father-son relationship. And in the visit, faults were admitted Apologies were made, and as Springsteen recalls, his dad drove all that way to ask him to reconsider the role that he would have in their family history. That his dad would be remembered as an ancestor and not as a ghost. Ghosts haunt and they burden, but often they just fade away into nothingness and are forgotten. He asked to be an ancestor. And here we have Mr. So-and-so, and we have Boaz, one essentially a ghost, and the other, as we will see, an ancestor. What sets these two apart? I think the first thing that jumps out to us is intentionality. Boaz intentionally sought Ruth's redemption. He makes it pretty clear that if Mr. So-and-so is not prepared to redeem, well, well, he is. The second thing that follows that intentionality is responsibility. The denying of himself in order to care for Ruth, to seek her welfare and her well-being. As we thought, thought last week, he sought good things for Ruth. Where Mr. So-and-so, Ruth's welfare seemed to involve too much personal risk. In life, we'll either be a ghost or an ancestor. That's a powerful line from Springsteen as he reflects on that moment with his father. And I think there's a place in this passage for us to reflect on those words as well. Reflect on how we would like to be remembered once we're gone. Will we be remembered at all? It allows us to reflect on the ways that God has set responsibility before us and how we respond to that responsibility. Do we embrace it? Do we run away from it? It allows us to consider the important relationships in our lives and how we can be more present. Maybe not just present, but purposeful, intentional with those people. And it allows us to think what it looks like for us to be ancestors in the faith. To be but one in a long line of Jesus followers, that the name of Jesus would continue from one generation to another. There's actually a lot we can reflect on here. 
And as we see in the text, Boaz is happy to assume that role, not only as Ruth's redeemer, but as an ancestor, one who will preserve the name of Elimelech on into the future. And so, like we all do, they trade the flip-flop. They trade the sandal and do the deal. No, that's probably lost on us. It was probably lost to the readers of Ruth because the author included it. But that's what they do, right? He and Mr. So-and-so, they trade the sandal, they seal the deal, probably as some sort of proof of purchase, right? That it's, it's happened, it's done. Ruth has found her redemption. She's found her rest in Boaz. Things pick up again in verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, Your witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilian and to Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gates of his native place, you are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and renown in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord would give to you by this woman. So Boaz took Ruth. And she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. After sealing the deal with the sandal, Boaz reminds the elders and the witnesses who were there that day what they had just seen. If you ever wondered to what extent Boaz hoped to carry out preserving the name of Elimelech, he tells us in verse 10, when he says that the name of Elimelech will be carried on through the inheritance of his land, in other words, that the land will remain in the family, the name will be carried on in the family itself, that through Boaz and Ruth and their children, they would not be forgotten, but that also the name would remain in that city, the city of Bethlehem, the city of Elimelech. If we think about this, certainly we can give Boaz his credit for playing his part here, but, but let's praise the Lord for what he's done over the course of this book. If we think back to chapter 1 where we find Ruth and Naomi in what appears to be a hopeless and also dangerous situation, two widows alone in the world, not looking like their situation is bound to improve anytime soon, and yet, by the grace of God, they are not only delivered from tragedy, but he restores them to where they now have a future in front of them. What's outstanding in these verses is the blessing that the elders speak over Ruth as they pray that God would grant her this foreign woman, this nobody at the start of the story, that, they would, that God would grant her a place among the matriarchs of Israel, that she would be fruitful like Rachel and Leah, the wives of Jacob, who become the mother of the 12 tribes of Israel. So they pray, too, that Ruth would build up the house of Boaz. And likewise, they pray for Boaz, for prosperity, that his name would be known in Bethlehem. 
You know, throughout Scripture, we often see God's grace shining through in the midst of human weakness. Right? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Strength by way of weakness runs well against the grain of the world's standard operating procedures. We hear about survival of the fittest, only the strong survive. We're surrounded by a cutthroat culture. And yet, Ruth is a reminder of the story that is all too common with God. One that shows how God, the God of the universe delights to draw near to and magnificently use those whom the world considers weak and needy and helpless and marginalized. God is not above using any of us, regardless of where we might find ourselves. And perhaps one of the best examples that we see comes from this very book in the person of Naomi. Think about verses 14 through 17. The women gathering around Naomi say, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him the name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. One of the interesting things about Ruth 4 is that Ruth's actually not in it very much. She's mentioned a few places. She's mentioned especially in verse 13 where we read that she and Boaz get married and they have a son. But then she shifts off stage and the spotlight once again shifts to Naomi. And if you look at how the book of Ruth is structured, there's almost these bookends that frame the book and it's Naomi's story. A story in which she went away from Bethlehem full, returned empty, and here in Ruth 4 is restored to perhaps a greater fullness than she has ever known at any point in her life. And we can only imagine that these women who come to surround her are some of the very same women who greeted her when she returned from Moab. They too, in a sense, act as witnesses in the passage as the elders witness this agreement between Boaz and Mr. So-and-so as they pray over Ruth and Boaz and celebrate Ruth's redemption, the women, they're witnesses to God's providential care of Naomi from the time that she came back from Moab until now. They're witnesses to God's grace in Naomi's life as he restores her from emptiness to fullness. We hear their praise. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be known as Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. 
the women praise God because this day he has provided Naomi with a redeemer. And some will insist that that redeemer is Boaz. But there's good reason to believe that, that the one that they're referring to is actually the child. It's actually Obed. The fact that the author emphasizes that it is this day that Naomi has found her redeemer and then connects that with Obed's birth makes that pretty clear. However, these women probably aren't using redeemer in the, the legal sense that we've talked about at much of the book. They're not thinking of a redeemer in the way that Boaz redeems Ruth. Instead, the birth of Obed redeemed Naomi from her emptiness. Naomi, who in chapter 1 tells us that she could no longer have a son because she no longer had a husband, well, God has given her a son. The women surrounding Naomi see that and praise God for his providential care of this woman. In the chapter, Obed serves as a reminder that God remembers his people. He remembered Naomi in her emptiness. He gave her a son. He remembered Ruth. He gave her a future and a hope through her marriage to Boaz. And Obed is living proof that Ruth's name will continue on, that it will not be forgotten. But this child also serves as a reminder that God remembers his covenant. He remembers his promises to his people. And that in working out, that he is working out a bigger plan during Ruth and Boaz and Naomi's lives. That through this child born of two worthy parents at a time when there was no king in Israel, when everyone just did whatever they wanted, that the Lord had laid the tracks down for royalty that Obed's grandson, Ruth and Boaz's great-grandson, would be God's man to lead all of Israel, King David. But David is not the greatest legacy that's left by Ruth and Boaz, because as we turn to Matthew chapter 1, we find both of their names forever remembered in the family tree of Jesus, the greater David. In Jesus, redemption finds its fullest form, as he is the ultimate reminder that God does not forget his covenant people or promises. In Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, by his blood shed for us on a cross as a gift of grace. He is the one that God promised all the way back in the garden who would come to crush the head of the serpent that is Satan. And it is true that he has done just that, that Satan has fallen. His powers over this world is broken through the mighty work of Christ. And what we believe about Jesus matters. It has eternal significance. For those who trust in Christ, believing that he is the very Son of God, very God of very God, come in the flesh to save you from sin and rescue you from death through his dying and his rising again. Those who believe, who are called by God's grace, the Bible tells us, will forever have their names recorded in the Lord's book of life. But that those who deny Jesus, who diminish him or ignore him, they will be cut off, subject to the same fate as Satan himself. There's a lot that we've talked about in this series in Ruth. It's a short yet profound book, and there's still much more to be said. 
But let's not forget that through and through, this is a story about redemption. And we saw that today, how God remembers his covenant people. He remembers his promises as his providential care for big and small things collide. But let us also remember that this is a story that points us to Christ and the ultimate redemption that's found only in him. That by faith, our names would be recorded for eternity as one of God's redeemed, a member of his family saved by the grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful for this book of Ruth, the small yet powerful message that you communicate to us through it. And Lord, we are thankful for the promises that we have in Jesus, that for all those who place their trust in him, who acknowledge that we are lost by ourselves, sinners in need of grace, and yet accept that free gift of grace that's found in Jesus. Lord, that you will forever write our names in your family tree as a child of God. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the love of Christ. Lord, we pray all this in his holy name. Amen.